Good morning, this is Jay Westerveld with my weekly show, Tales and Trails. We uh, usually have guests on this show, and this weekend we're doing something a little different. We will, I'm, I'm going to do more of a little monologue about uh, wildlife in winter. And I, th I think that really right now during this time where folks are kind of stuck inside and often not able to avail themselves of like sports and things like that, they find themselves kind of trapped uh, in four walls, not able to come up with good ways to get outside or anything. So to, to that end, sorry, a little uh, technical thing. To that end, I'd like to talk a little bit about things you can do outdoors, even if you're not a sportsman or a skier or, or an ice skater or something like that. I'm a big wildlife guy, nature guy, and I grew up here in Warwick, New York, which is within an hour of New York City to the Northwest. Still in New York though, not New Jersey. And I've done a lot of work with wildlife ecology uh, over my lifetime. And uh, I'm the executive director of the New York Natural History Council, which is a lot of fun. It's something that I've been not so active with in past years, just uh, because I'm I've been abroad uh, quite a bit. But what we find are that people would love to engage with nature, especially parents, would love to engage their, their kids with nature, get them to drop the tablet and uh, you know get away from the TV, get away from the screens and get outdoors, but it, it's tough to do. I, I'm the parent of a, a kid who can get easily attached to the tablet, to the TV, et cetera, and I know how difficult that can be. But you know, it, it starts and, you know, I'm not this guy who's preaching who hasn't been there. Um, it starts by turning that stuff off. Sure, they'll throw a tantrum sometimes, but getting out into nature doesn't require having a wildlife biologist with you or going on a tour or paying somebody money. Sometimes it just involves getting into the car and driving to a nice wild spot. And here, uh, WTBQ, we actually broadcast to the New York City region, all five boroughs. We broadcast to Rockland County, parts of Westchester. I've actually caught a little bit of this station, believe it or not, in uh, the south of, of Putnam, um, but just quickly. But also northern New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania. And in this region, we can more or less call it the tri-state region, the wildlife watching opportunities are just beyond abundant. Here in Warwick, New York, uh, where the actual studio itself is located from which we broadcast uh, to the tri-state area and all of New York City, we're surrounded by wonderful nature. And we have to credit, actually our town supervisor, Mr. Michael Sweeten for that to some degree, because he's been a huge proponent of PDR, the Purchase of Development Rights Program, whereby uh, municipality will purchase a landowner's rights to develop the land. They'll say, well, you could have made X amount of dollars by developing this, but keeping it open uh, space, farmland, especially, you know, we'll make sure that we buy the rights for that. You continue to live there and farm it. And that's paid for typically by a sort of like a tax. I don't believe it's officially called a tax. It might be anyway, with all real estate transactions in this town, it's a great program. And some people might moan, understandably, geez, another tax, what's this about? Well, the logic behind it is that people come to Warwick, New York, and you know, arguably other towns in the region for the rural uh, area around it. And, the, and this brings house prices up. So technically it's, you know, you're sort of getting what you pay for. You 
come in with the understanding that you will pay that. And as a result, there's all this beautiful open space. A lot of times on a back road of a, you know, a country area like this, there are spots where you can just pull off, especially a, a real farm road and examples here right in Warwick are certainly Lower Wisner Road, Upper Wisner Road, even Bellevale Road and many roads uh, out in Pine Island, believe it or not, which is black dirt country, which brings in totally different wildlife in the winter. You can pull over, make sure your kids have reflective vests. If you have kids with you, I'm not a fan of walking kids on a roadside. But especially for adults, it's it's nice to just pull over, maybe sit, use your car as a blind, as we call it, so the creatures don't see you. They're used to seeing cars all day by roads, so that they don't really mind. With binoculars and watch, or take a walk if there's a, a really wide shoulder. We have great parks here, beautiful passive parks. Two come to mind immediately, right over on the corner technically of Blooming Grove, Chester, a little bit of it's in Chester, New York, and Monroe, New York, is Goose Pond Mountain State Park. This park just has abundant opportunities to just drive there, park right on Route 17M. You can, you know, check it on Google Maps and just take a hike. There's a road. Uh, when I was a little boy, it was actually an active road for farms. Uh, it was bought by uh, the state a long time ago and uh, it was closed off and now people can use it to hike. Get out of the house, check it on Google Maps first, drive over there, Route 17M, you'll see the pull-off parking site and just walk in. Some people may be worried about wildlife and thinking, well, there are dangerous things out there. And our region in the winter, when we're not worried about things like yellow jackets or potentially the very, very, very rare encounter with a venomous, a venomous snake, which are typically docile anyway, there's really nothing out there that's going to hurt you in terms of animal life and not even in plant life. Watch out for poison ivy, of course, but we're typically well-dressed and we don't go crashing through the woods in the winter too much. If you go to one of these park areas, you will see so many kinds of birds. You're likely to see coyotes. Just yesterday, walking with my daughter on Lower Wisner Road in Warwick, we saw a beautiful, enormous coyote um, just, just having crossed the road. We, we see a lot of bear out there, even in the daytime. Contrary to popular belief, when you see a mammal like that, uh, raccoons, opossum, skunks, uh, in the daytime, it doesn't mean they're sick. Most of them sort of get up and, and rummage around for food when they feel like it. They're kind of like teenagers. You know, they'll wake up at any hour and, and raid the fridge. And that's really how these animals behave. When you see a raccoon in the daytime, it does not mean it's rabid. In fact, in the winter time, we rarely see uh, rabid animals. It has been known to occur, but it's very, very rare. So anyway, get out there and just go to these spots and walk. Again, you don't need to read a lot of books. You don't need to educate yourself about it on the internet first. Just pull over and go on in. This is a cool part of the world because of the number of different types of species we have. Every show, I say the word biodiversity because it's something of which I'm a big fan. And biodiversity is just the number of different types of something you have. You could have a fruit bowl that's full of apples and we'd say that's very low diversity. You could have the same fruit bowl that has apples, bananas, you know, pineapples, lemons, et cetera, in it, and uh, that has high diversity. Well, it's the same with nature. The higher the diversity, the more interesting it is, especially for children. My dear friend, the very, very uh, celebrated and awarded environmental educator, Mike Mallon, who was my first guest on this show, actually, 
uh, he he has given great advice on that because he's he's really worked a lot with what they call nature deficit syndrome with children. Children, children, unlike us, they're often really intrigued by small things. They see a little tiny a baby tree next to a trail. They're very excited about that. You or I might just walk past it and not really care. Kids love little things. So in the wintertime, they often love birds. Of course, you can have a bird feeder and attract birds to your house, bring it in at night. And when you bring it in, just first put a garbage bag around it, remove it from whatever hook you have it on, and then bring it in so the seeds don't get all over in your house. And uh, then you don't have bear coming by at night or raccoons who are both, they, they just ravage bird feeders. And it's not always great to have a bear or raccoon next to your house. They tend to knock over garbage cans, etc. as we all know. Anyway. If you have a bird feeder, you can start with nature watching right away. There are very few areas, including midtown Manhattan, where if you put a bird feeder out, you won't see a lot of birds right next to your window on the first day. It's a really wonderful thing for kids and it starts to engage them in nature. As most parents know and all educators know, children love movement and color. And nature does that for us. You can actually get a kid away from that tablet if you get them outdoors. So. Around here, what do we see primarily? When you get out of your car at any of our parks, and I should add, without going off topic, uh, right here in Warwick on the border of Sussex County, New Jersey, is the Wallkill Wildlife Sanctuary. Sanctuary. That's a federal fish and wildlife sanctuary that has incomparable nature walk, uh, walking, certainly nature uh, watching, bird watching, and you see really great things, it, especially in the winter, a lot of rather rare types of owls are there that fly during the daytime. You can really see cool things and kids love owls for some reason. They're, they're just cute. You know, they're right out of Winnie the Pooh. So this area, which is easy to find off of Oil City Road in Warwick, has wonderful opportunities and a very nice, simple parking area. And after the break, we're going to talk about the kind of animals that you might see there. Meat Warehouse is a butcher with old-time family values. Remember back in the day when people knew their butcher by name and visiting them was a social experience? They would talk to customers about how to cook a piece of meat to perfection. Sam's combines old-world methods with modern techniques. Call your favorite butcher, Sam's, at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. Tune in every Saturday at 8 a.m. for Horseplay with me, Jimmy Cassidy of the Clover Stables. Boarding, riding lessons, and how to take life by the reins. Radio worth listening to. Hi, this is Michael Newhart, Mayor of the Village of Warwick, inviting you to tune in every Thursday at 11 a.m. to Village Life and learn about the village happenings. Call and share your ideas, comments, and suggestions, and be part of the show with me and Mary Kalora. WTBQ. Today we're talking about nature and getting kids outside and getting people outside, getting ourselves out there. And it's a uh, it's an interesting time of the year, winter, because we find ourselves often stuck inside, and sometimes uh, that's by our own device. 
So what I've been recommending to people is to try to get out there, try to enjoy some of the natural features in this area. We're very close to New York City and city dwellers can find it very simple to just get onto a train or get into their car and just get out and get into nature. Uh, if you can drive here and if you live in the Hudson Valley, it's just wonderful to quickly check where your nearest parks are. Just drive there. The kind of animals you'll see here, if you go to places like the Wallkill River Marsh that I mentioned earlier and Goose Pond Mountain State Park are really varied and really interesting. As I'd mentioned just yesterday with uh, my child, I, I saw a coyote and many different types of hawks. The most common hawk we see, and you see them when you drive up and down the you know West Side Highway in the Henry Hudson up on the telephone poles, et cetera, is the red-tailed hawk. It's a very, very common bird in our area. It's big and it typically looks very white. Uh, our northeastern race of red-tailed hawks is very, very light colored underneath. And a lot of times people will say, wow, look at that white owl. It's actually a red-tailed hawk, big fat bird. Um, they just live on voles, which are little tiny mice and uh, some mice and very rarely in the wintertime rabbits or squirrels, tough for them to catch squirrels. Anyway, you'll see them everywhere. They tend to be very, very tame and children love to start playing the game. I spy, I spy with my tiny eye and you ask them to try to find animals. You don't have to be a wildlife expert to do this. You can buy a field guide. Uh, just a little book that tells you what kind of birds are in your area. And Amazon is great for that, if not your local bookstore. And uh, bring the kids and show them which books, which birds live in our area by the little range maps, little tiny maps next to each bird typically that say, okay, it's in you know that part of the country or this. Other hawks that we'll see in this area, in the wintertime, you'll see the red-shouldered uh, hawk, which they used to not be here so much throughout the winter. They used to migrate to the south, but just like their corollary, the barred owl, which also tended to become more numerous in this region as things started warming up uh, more, especially during our winters, they, they tend to stick around. We now have red-shouldered hawks all winter long. And then we have northern species that are sort of the opposite. We won't have them here in the summer, but they come down for better hunting in the winter. And foremost among those is the rough-legged hawk. An interesting thing about the rough-legged hawk and even the red-tailed hawk to a degree is that they have analogs in Eurasia. In other words, across the ocean, you have the same bird. And in you know some cases like the rough-legged hawk, it has the same exact Latin name because it's felt that, well, they were probably the same species and you know have straggled across the ocean at some time. And in the case of the red-tailed hawk, we don't see those in Eurasia, but they have a very close cousin called the common buzzard. And um, I should add, it looks like we've got a phone call, and I should add that if anybody has nature questions, please call in. It's 651-1110. And we have a caller now. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, Jay. Hi. It's Taylor. Hey, Taylor. How are you? I'm good. So I'm listening to the show, and I have a question for you because I've been hearing an owl all, every day outside and I'm thinking I would like to figure out a way that you attract owls to get rid of the mice because <laughs> you know you live in you live in the country you have all these mice and I know that owls you know that's their breakfast lunch and dinner it sure so is is there a way is there a way to attract them or to keep them where they are well the short answer is no but the long answer Taylor is this 
you can, and I, this is going to sound a little zany, you can play a recording of an owl call outside your home, day or night. It will call the owl in, and if there are no other owls in the area, there will be more mice than other areas, and they will stick around and put it on their, their route, sort of like uh, the Amazon driver <laughs> has a route, and they'll, they'll start stopping in at your property, and they will eat them. The other cool thing, Taylor, about playing an owl call is songbirds hate owls. If you play an owl call during the daytime, you'll get beautiful songbirds coming in, screaming and yelling, looking for the owls so that they can uh, give it a hard time. Um, <laughs> so that, that really will work. It's not a very traditional thing to do. It's something that I sort of came up with as a kid that really, really works. Thanks I for, love it. Yeah, thanks for calling, right. Taylor. Good oh, question. Thank you. All right. Take care. Love your show. Thank you, Taylor. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. And that was a really interesting question because attracting wildlife to us, you know, sometimes the mountain has to come to Muhammad, so to speak. And if you attract wildlife to where you are, to your home, that can be a lot more exciting, especially for, let's say, old people who can't get out of the house or, you know, maybe you're ill. Uh, I got really into watching a bird watcher, uh, bird feeder. When I was a preteen, I'd once broken my leg really badly and that kept me from going skiing. I typically, uh, whether I wanted to or not, had to ski all winter. Uh, it was a family thing. And so I was indoors a lot and I got so almost addicted to watching a bird feeder. It, it's, a, it's a really nice thing. And of course that was a long time ago in the seventies, but even to kids nowadays, it can be very engaging and interesting if we give them the opportunity and turn the TV off, shut the tablet down and say, just get out there. And again, guys, if anybody wants to call in with any nature questions, if I know the answer, I'll answer it. Uh, I won't make anything up. Uh, the, the number here again is 845-651-1110. If anybody wants to text a question, it's 845-328-0886. And an interesting thing uh, that, that I'm, I'm thinking of right now as a result of that, that call from Taylor is that... If you are out in the woods and you hear a bunch of songbirds scolding something, if you hear them sort of going crazy and making angry sounds, walk to where that is. You'll often find an owl sitting in a tree, minding its own business, trying to sleep during the daytime. And the birds just are furious at its very existence and they'll be mobbing it and attacking it, making really loud sounds. So it's a cool way to find nature. Another way to find owls, especially in the winter when you're out in the woods, is go near evergreen trees, coniferous trees, like a big stand of cedar trees or especially pine trees. Look around on the ground. You'll see what, what we call pellets or casts. And this will be something, it, it almost looks like uh, it, a, a little thing of hair, like the size of your finger, gray hair, typically mouse hair with some bones in it. And if you find a few of those beneath a tree, look up. You may see an owl nest and you may see an owl. Something that, that really surprises a lot of people about owls in our region is that the great horned owl, which is our, our largest owl, and uh, they're the ones with the really soft call at night. They go like that. Uh, you'll hear them. They nest in January. They'll actually have babies in January. 
They'll lay those eggs sometimes late December, early January. And right now, if you go out into the woods, there may be baby owls in the nest. And it's a very interesting dynamic. This way they have less competition with other birds for food, other raptors such as hawks. Red-tailed hawks, who are their closest competitor for food, tend to nest much, much later. They have their their uh, eggs typically in the, the late spring, and then the young will be in the nest in the summer with a red-tailed hawk. But a great horned owl takes advantage of all of this extra hunting in the winter, and they have their, their babies quite early. They lay their eggs and have their babies to raise and feed like uh, very responsible parents. So anyway, that's another great way to find owls. If you would like to see owls in the daytime, I cannot stress enough how interesting the Wallkill River National Wildlife Sanctuary is right over here in Warwick, New York, and it goes much farther into Sussex County, New Jersey, but we can access it here in Warwick, New York. It's just check on a map, Google Maps, Oil City Road, Warwick, New York. You'll see the sanctuary there, and there's a wonderful parking area, even a little kiosk with bird guides. There are a lot of birders there walking around or just standing at the parking lot watching. And if you're there in the afternoon, typically right before sunset, during, and certainly right after sunset, if you're brave and w dressed warmly enough, you'll see what are called short-eared owls. Now, these are an interesting, again, winter visitor who come from the north for the most part for the great hunting down here where it's a little warmer in the winter. And I should add that here in New York State, we have, in terms of birds who actually nest and breed here, over 260 species. This is why I say just get out there. You'll see things. And if you make a contest with your kids, how many different birds do you see? You don't even have to know the names. If they see a, a male cardinal they, and they don't know what it is, they can go, oh, well, that red bird. Okay, right, red bird. Big hawk for red-tailed hawk. And make it a contest and then let them look at a book or if you have to, a tablet uh, when they go home at night to try to look those birds up and see what they are. And before the break, we were talking about mammals as well because one thing that we have an abundance of that we didn't when I was a child in this region are coyotes. And our eastern coyotes are far, far bigger than the little western coyotes who yap around in the uh, chaparral of, of the western United States. And as such, they eat bigger animals and they're much more interesting to watch. They can be tame. They are harmless. Any animal that has rabies, of course, is going to be dangerous, and you know, including your cat. But coyotes are shy about people. They would never attack a person. It simply doesn't happen. And they are, they really primarily eat mice. A lot of people don't realize that. I'm, in fact, on social media in our nature group, Warwick Wildlife, uh, which is a nice group we have on Facebook, there was a, a member who was very upset about coyotes saying that they eat horses and, and cattle. And I just thought, well, I eat horses and cattle. Can't eat horses in America, but, um, but coyotes don't. Uh, unless they're dead already, the horse, the, the cow. And th this was very strange to me. We have these strange ideas uh, like our bear, which are very abundant locally. Black bear are quite harmless. They won't attack a person. They typically want to run away from you. And with my child, uh, I've seen them in, in the wild a lot. And my child is even always excited to see them. We'll walk toward them and they just sort of are embarrassed and you know want to get get away from you as quickly as possible. 
They eat berries and things like that, especially in the winter. They really don't eat too much meat at all. And they're not meat eaters like the Western grizzly bears and things of that nature, or in Eurasia throughout Europe and all the brown bear, which is just a small version of our grizzly bear. But over 260 species of bird nest in New York. Here in Orange County, New York, we have over 200 nesting species, believe it or not. In Goose Pond Mountain State Park, they, they have some records for that as well. And these are just the birds who breed here. Many birds like the snowy owl, which is a large, beautiful white owl, occasionally come down here from the far north for the great hunting. And they don't breed here, but we have to add them into a different statistic for a number of total, uh, total number of birds we'll see here. We'll see well over 285 species overall in the state of New York. Interestingly, New York has a lot of freshwater fish species. Statewide, we have over 165 different species of fish. Here right outside of New York City, you can easily see half that number in our ponds and lakes. And one other interesting thing to do that very few people think of is ice fishing. Now, it may sound kind of rustic and kind of cold, and it can be cold if you're not dressed appropriately, but it is a fun thing to do, especially with kids, because you make a hole in the ice. First, you need a license. It's only $25. You can get your license at your town hall. You make a hole in the ice, and you can drop bait in off the end of a fishing rod, or you can buy what's called a tip-up. That's almost like a little trap that catches one fish at a time. Kids love this. You don't have to kill and eat the fish. I do. I love freshwater fish and they're very healthy to eat. But it, again, it's an interesting way to engage kids with nature. And if you have safe ice, and please always practice extreme safety on ice, especially with children, you can see a lot of things through that ice. And after a quick word from our sponsor, we're going to talk about what you might see through the ice in the winter. Meat Warehouse is a butcher with old-time family values. Remember back in the day when people knew their butcher by name and visiting them was a social experience? They would talk to customers about how to cook a piece of meat to perfection. Sam's combines old-world methods with modern techniques. Call your favorite butcher, Sam's, at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. Hi, this is your favorite assemblyman, Carl Brabadek. And your state senator, Mike Martucci. And we are teaming up for the Friday Roundtable, where we'll be talking about what's happening in Albany. That's every Friday at 9 a.m. On, on radio, radio worth listening, listening to. to. This is attorney Bob Kruhulik of the law firm Beatty & Kruhulik, the lawyer guy. Tune in every Tuesday at 12 noon for the latest legal advice and tips. We're taking calls and giving answers to all your legal questions. That's every Tuesday at 12 noon on Radio Worth Listening To. WTBQ GHT Weather. Chilly, but otherwise okay this afternoon. A mixture of sunshine and high clouds and a high temperature in the low to mid 30s. Tonight it becomes cloudy, maybe a flurry right near morning, low down to 25 or so. And on Tuesday, it's cloudy, some areas of snow arriving in the morning. Can briefly turn moderate in the early to mid-afternoon before changing to a mix of snow, sleet, and freezing rain towards evening, high in the upper 20s, and about an inch or two of accumulation by Wednesday morning. Ken Elliott in the WTBQ Weather Center. 
And we're back with Tales and Trails. This is Jay Westerveld with our weekly show about history, natural history, culture, both global and local. And it's winter time, and this is sort of a special about wildlife in winter. And what better place to talk about that than here, just outside of New York City, where we have such a plethora of different types of animals to see in the winter time. And what a great time to have an excuse to get out of the house. Few of us really like the winter. It can be cold, uncomfortable. And nature watching is one way to get out there if you're not a sporting person who enjoys, say, ice skating or skiing or things of that nature. Kids can become very engaged in nature in the wintertime because of all the cool things there are to see. And before the break, we were talking about ice fishing and not just going out there for sporting reasons for pulling fish out of the ice, but if you have a safe, and I have to stress safe, frozen pond or lake that you're visiting where you see other adults safely out on the ice and you can check the ice and make sure it's a minimum of four inches thick. If you have clear ice, you'll see interesting things under there. A fun thing to do with kids is near shallow water. And again, only still water lakes and ponds don't ever go out on any frozen river unless it's, you know, again, something like the Hudson where there are a lot of people and it's obviously very, very thick ice. Uh, the reason for that being if you go through the ice in a river, especially if a child were to go through, they can be lost under the ice with the current, whereas on still water, in the rare instance where something goes wrong after you've checked the thickness of the ice, et cetera, we tend to stay in one spot. So if there's very, very safe, and I have to really stress that thick ice that's still clear, you can walk and look for certain things. You'll see different species of fish through the ice. And surprisingly, on sunny days, you'll often see live turtles foraging around under the ice. And with your child may ask right away, my gosh, that turtle, how is he breathing? Or you can ask your child, hey, how do you think, how do you think that guy's actually breathing? He can't come up for air. And you'll see the turtle's quite active walking around looking for food. And science in, well, about 25 years ago, taught us something new about how turtles do this underwater. It turns out that uh, many species of freshwater turtles actually respire. They, they get oxygen uh, through their bodies and not through their nose, but actually through what's called their cloaca, which is well, sort of a turtle hiney. And they'll take in oxygenated water and in something almost similar to their colon, they'll actually separate oxygen from the water and that will run through their blood and keep them alive. It's a fascinating thing to see and it's a fascinating thing to show kids that so many different creatures are adapted to living in so many different ways in so many environments. And speaking of turtles, uh, in this part of the world, in New York State, or this part of New York State, the lower Hudson Valley, we have at least 13 species of freshwater turtles that you might see, in addition to those 260 species of breeding birds. That's a shocking statistic, isn't it? And uh, statewide, 165 species of fish. And in our area, you'll see, you have a chance of seeing half that many if you're bring in all the different kinds of minnows that go throughout all the streams, et cetera. But in our region, in the, in the lower Hudson Valley, you, you can easily find over 40 species of fish, believe it or not. And many of those are game fish that are actually good eats. Um, in terms of amphibians, uh, those are frogs, toads, and salamanders. We can boast in this region, just within an hour of New York City, 17 species of salamander. 
which is shocking to many people. And although you won't see them in the winter, if you go out in the spring and summer with your child on a rainy night with flashlights only on a country road that's very, very safe, you might see them crossing the road. Or if you go into the woods and you gently, gingerly lift rocks off of the ground, you might find salamanders under there. Kids love salamanders. They have cute little faces. They're slow, so they're easy to watch, and they're often very colorful. We have a lot of frogs here, frogs and toads. Interestingly, we have approximately 14 species of frogs and toads right here in the Hudson, lower Hudson Valley. I say approximately because sometimes we discover what we thought was one species may actually be two species living sort of close to each other, and they just happen to look alike, and this happened a little over 10 years ago with a new frog species found in this region. And it it's not as if someone went out and saw something that was, you know, looked dr dramatically different and had never been seen before. A wonderful scientist, um, just a, a great guy, uh, Jeremy Feinberg, had heard some frog calls and said they just sound different even though we see that they're leopard frogs. And when he looked more closely, he started to learn that it was a different species of leopard frog. And lo and behold, he did a lot of incredibly arduous field work with some other amazing people, including uh, Dr. Matt Schlesinger, uh, who's a New York State uh, DC employee in a way. He actually works with an arm that's a blended arm with a university uh, that just works with wildlife and identifying wildlife, which is really, really interesting. It's called the Natural Heritage Program. And they did a lot of work and decided, and it took a lot of uh, exasperating work uh, with peer review, having other scientists argue with them uh, in journals to finally say it is a new species. So there are very many fascinating things here. It's, it's a great part of the world. Getting back to mammals, like the bears and the coyotes we talked about, those are sort of the really interesting things that are very lions and tigers and bears, oh my. We see abundant numbers of white-tailed deer, of course. You will see foxes. We have two types of foxes here. We have the red fox and we have the gray fox. And they're very different animals. The red fox is like, a, as everyone really knows the red fox, is like a tiny red little doggy wolf looking guy. Very canine. They're, they're both canids, which means they're members of the dog family, but they're very different animals. The gray fox can actually climb trees. It's very feline in its appearance and even in its hunting habits. Any of our three local wild dogs, canids, the coyote, the red fox, and the gray fox can be seen mousing where they just sit in a field just like you'll see a domestic cat out on your yard on the snow listening with its ears perked forward into the snow for mice. And they'll leap up into the air and they will go straight down into the snow, often to where you only see the tip of their tail if it's what we call fresh pow out there. And they'll come up very often with a little mouse in their mouth and a you know very victorious little uh, fox smile and they'll run away with it or eat it on the spot. Many things eat those mice during this time of the year. As far as hawks, there's a really interesting hawk that we don't have so many of year round, but during the, the summer, the local numbers are joined by many northern birds who come down here for the hunting. That's called the harrier. Now this is a very strange hawk. It's very large has longish wings and a long tail, and they fly very low with slow wing beats right over the ground to take mice. They actually have what we call a facial disc, uh, sort of a circle of feathers around their face, just like an owl has, 
that actually helps them to hear, not only to see, but to hear mice perhaps rustling beneath the snow and the grass down below it. And you'll watch them flapping very slowly like big moths over a field in an open area. And you, if you take your kid out and you just watch and you can spot one, follow it with your eyes. You may just see it catch a mouse. It, it happens very commonly. We get falcons here. Year round, you will see the peregrine falcon in this region. And this is a, this is a very interesting bird. Sadly, they were extirpated. Technically, the... Eastern race, the peregrine falcon went extinct because of DDT poisoning throughout the 50s and 60s and into the 1970s. <clears throat> and so what happened was some, once the pesticide DDT was outlawed uh, nationwide and to a good degree worldwide, some biologists, especially here in New York State, Dr. Thomas Cade with Cornell and the late Heinz Meng from right here at uh, the State University of New York at New Paltz, I knew Heinz uh, when I was a kid and I used to actually do falconry with him and they decided to get little baby falcons from the, from the Canadian Pacific. And these are called the Peels Peregrine Falcon and they raise them at home just like they raise their own falcons for hunting that they would get from all over the world. And they started releasing them out in areas where there were cliffs right nearby here, just 35 minutes away in New Paltz, New York. There are these beautiful cliffs for climbing where I climbed a lot as a teenager and into my twenties, the Shawangunk Ridge, uh, the traps, the main section of cliffs are called. Everyone who goes to that town sees them. They released birds there once they were adults, hoping that they'd nest there. And in some cases they got them to nest, but an interesting thing happened with all of these released peregrine falcons they would be released by these fellas who did very hard work to make sure that they didn't become in any way domesticated. They wore gloves that looked like the head of an adult falcon when they'd feed them so that the birds would think, okay, that's a mommy or daddy bird and they wouldn't get used to people. So they'd release them and the falcons were smart. They'd fly around and they'd go over to New York City and say, wow, there's a lot of pigeons here. Look at all these scrumptious pigeons. And they'd start hunting pigeons. Then they'd look at the buildings and with their falcon mind, presumably would say, what a great nesting area. Look at these cliffs with these wonderful ledges. So in New York City, we have peregrine falcons quite numerously nesting on ledges outside of people's windows. I know of several people who actually can watch these birds that were not just extirpated, but technically the Eastern race extinct. Um, we see peregrine falcons now from the Pacific Northwest nesting on, on their balconies. It's just a fascinating thing to see. And they nest on all of our bridges here in the Hudson Valley. So on the George Washington Bridge, the Tappan Zee Bridge, the Bear Mountain Bridge, they're nesting peregrine falcons. In the wintertime, if you drive anywhere near the Hudson River and you find a nice safe pull-off like there are on both sides of the Bear Mountain Bridge, you can watch peregrine falcons and very likely you'll see bald eagles. Much like the peregrine falcon, when I was a child, bald, bald eagles were never seen here. They were all but wiped out by DDT poisoning. Once that chemical was banned and people started working really hard, biologists to get these things reintroduced to the wild, they took off. And contrary to a lot of popular belief, the bald eagle isn't this great predator. They actually like eating dead fish. And the Hudson River, especially in the winter, has wonderful, wonderful piles of dead fish on the ice uh, that just sort of come up from winter kill. Um, 
and the eagles will eat them and they tend to colonize in the winter and they pick little spots from which they can wake up in the morning at sunrise and go down and find dead fish to eat on the ice and other fish uh you'll see that you know do well in the winter are sometimes taken by the osprey when they come back into town in the spring and the autumn and the bald eagle will actually steal them from the osprey they'll lazily watch from above flapping above while an osprey hunts so so well and so difficultly and once they catch a fish the bald eagle will swoop down and take it from them and after a quick word from our sponsors we'll talk a little more about some of these birds we'll see Sam's Mead Warehouse has been supplying restaurants and shops with the highest quality local and sustainably sourced prime and choice wholesale meat, steaks, poultry, seafood, and much more for over 20 years. Whether you're a small family butcher shop or a busy steakhouse, expect A1 service and the finest products available. Call Sam's at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off Route 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Free Speech with Stephen Keeter, where you can voice your opinion, express your ideas, comment, or make suggestions on the topic du jour, right here on Radio Worth Listening To. Hi, this is Dr. David Leach, the superintendent of the Warwick Valley Central School District and host of Your Schools. Listen every Monday at 12 noon to learn what's happening in your schools right here on WTBQ, Radio Worth Listening To. And we're back with Tales and Trails. This is Jay Westerveld, your host of this weekly show where we talk about history, natural history, culture, both global and local. And our little special show this week is wildlife in winter because we all have to get out of the house more. So many of us have been housebound throughout this whole COVID crisis and more than ever, it's so essential that we get out and get some sunshine and some fresh air. And what better way than to go skiing or ice skating? Well, not everybody likes to do those things. So sometimes just nature watching can do it. Some winter bird watching. We were just talking about bald eagles and how you can see them so easily in the winter time by getting anywhere near the Hudson River, even if you just stay in your car with binoculars and watch. Another interesting thing and a, a really interesting dynamic of which many people are unaware is that we're taught when we're kids in this area that the robin is a springtime bird. They migrate, they go south for the winter, and, and then they come back in the springtime. Factually, robins are here year-round. Some do migrate. For the most part, we have resident birds, and admittedly, we have some northern birds who migrate only to here in the winter. Most of our resident robins are here year-round. What occurs is they typically like yards suburban settings etc for going out and getting worms pulling worms out of out of the grass and interestingly earthworms are not even native to the state of new york for the last ten thousand years when the glaciers came through and scraped everything away scraped all the soil away it took all the earthworms with it and very seriously there were not earthworms here until european colonists came and 
brought them along in many cases accidentally, in some cases intentionally, and that's why we have earthworms now. So robins, as a result of the arrival of colonists, did kind of well and their numbers came up quite a bit. And we were, again, we were taught when I was a, a boy in school, well, they go away for the winter. Well, what they actually do is they go into the forest in the winter time because they can't pull earthworms from our yards so much, especially when there's snow and it's quite cold and the worms are way under to get away from the frost line. So they go out into swampy, wet areas in the woods where there are berries, things like uh, holly berries and, uh, you know, the winterberry holly, which is a different berry altogether, elderberries that tend to stay on grapes, rose hips, things of that nature that tend to stay and sort of turn into raisins in some cases in the winter. They'll actually subsist upon uh, while they're waiting for the thaw to go back to eating their earthworms. And also in those wet areas, where the water on some of the little swamps in the woods tends to open up before lakes and ponds do, they'll see things like earthworms and other small snails, et cetera, believe it or not, quite early through the winter, and then they can subsist upon those while they're again waiting for the thaw. Then what happens is the snow leaves our lawns, things warm up, and they hit the yards to start eating worms. They don't really migrate away at all. This is true of bluebirds too. Bluebirds, which, boy, there's another species that were almost not here at all. They were almost totally gone from this county when I was a child. Uh, they came back as a result of the discontinuance of a lot of pesticides. Nest boxes helped a little, but science shows us and rational science shows us that it wasn't really so much pressure from other birds that use their nesting sites as it was very likely just pesticide use that killed off so many of the insects that they specifically like to eat and that also made their eggshells too thin so that the eggs would break when they try to incubate them much the way a hen sits on eggs in a hen house. So once we discontinued some of these uh, worse sort of pesticides, for lack of a better expression, um, these far more toxic and insidious pesticides that went into the systems of every animal in the area, the bluebirds were able to make a little bit of a comeback with some help from people putting bluebird boxes up for them to nest in. Well, people have often thought that bluebirds also flock and go away in the winter. What occurs is they do flock more because they're not nesting so they don't have to stay separate. And flocking is a great instinct for them. It helps them evade hawks. If a hawk goes after a flock of birds and the birds split up, the hawk, hawks naturally have ADD. Most predators have ADD. And they just can't really zero in on one and they're sort of confused. And they lose the whole flock. Whereas if they go after one bird, they'll run that bird down until typically they catch it. So. These bluebirds, much like the robins, will go into marshy areas to subsist upon berries, including some introduced berries that some people consider to be a pest. They actually help our native bird numbers. And they'll overwinter, believe it or not, in buildings, abandoned houses, certainly barns, abandoned dairy barns, are often filled with bluebirds up, up in the rafters at night in the winter, uh, huddling together to stay warm. They'll also stay in their nesting boxes. So when you have a warm, sunny day in the winter, what we call in skiing a bluebird day, that's a well-named thing because with that phenomenon, that's when you go out and you'll actually see bluebirds. And here in the Hudson Valley, especially in Warwick, New York, if you get out on a sunny, brilliant day in the winter when it just feels good to be alive, that crisp air but abundant sunshine, you're highly likely to see bluebirds. And they're just beautiful to see 
because their their color is actually an iridescence. They they don't have blue pigment in their feathers. It's it's actually a form of the way the light refracts off of them to give them that blue look. On a sunny day, they're just brilliant out there, electric blue. And then when you see them alongside the bright red male cardinals uh, that we have in our area in the winter, it's just a beautiful thing to see. And again, for children, that can be so engaging because of movement and color, two things which kids like. And of course, kids tend to like animals. And you don't have to watch an old Disney movie to get kids interested in animals. Just get them outside and it will happen. So as far as birds, if you have a bird feeder set up, you're opening yourself up to seeing easily 30 different species of birds, possibly more. Most people, when they set up a bird feeder in a suburban area, are likely to see at least 15 different species. Most commonly, you'll see the black-capped chickadee, a well-named little bird, little tiny gray thing, who has a black and white head. It looks like he wears a little black cap. Interestingly, these two have analogs throughout Eurasia, very common all through Europe and uh, throughout all of Asia are chickadees, but in the rest of the world, they're actually called tits, believe it or not, the bush tit, the blue tit, the coal tit, and they look exactly like our chickadees because in many cases, they're almost the same exact species. Speaking of the members of the chickadee family, what we call the tit family, you'll also see the titmouse, which is a little gray bird, the same size as a chickadee that has the same sort of hyperactive uh, bearing to it. And it has a tiny crest like a cardinal does so that from the side, its head looks like sort of a triangle. They will come to your bird feeder, especially if you have a lot of sunflower seed. You'll see some small olive birds and maybe wonder what they are. These are actually the familiar goldfinch that's bright yellow during the summertime and especially during breeding. What happens is their pelage, meaning, or their plumage in this case, sorry, uh, meaning their feathers, that changes for the winter time. And this is a great survival adaptation because when they have a more dull color, they blend in better with branches and dirt and things like that in the winter and they're not seen by predators so well. So you'll see those at your feeder. You'll certainly see sparrows, which some people just call LBBs, little brown birds. Um, and you'll see them all around, especially on the ground near your feeder. The familiar, the familiar blue jay, big blue and white bird with a crest, uh, they'll sort of take over a feeder, of course. And the cardinal, which I mentioned before, is easily, easily brought to your backyard by just putting sunflower seeds in a feeder. And interestingly, with all of these birds, and I'd mentioned this on a show uh, last month, if you can, even just with your phone, uh, go to a website that has the bird calls, turn the volume up and play the calls of some of these familiar feeder birds outside your window, you're highly likely to get them within minutes visiting your feeder, just looking for the hubbub and trying to see where the other birds are. Again, for kids, this is a lot of fun too, even though Admittedly, we're often using a screen when we do that, but in this case, we're turning the screen toward the wildlife. And this is really a lot of fun to bring the birds in. And it's a great thing for kids to do, to look out the window instead of at the TV or you know at the laptop or tablet. So this can be a lot of fun. Also, the things you see up in the sky, those big birds circling around that people typically say, oh, those are hawks. Uh, if they look black or very dark, they're almost invariably vultures. Typically, the larger one with long wings is called the turkey vulture, and it's named that because it has a naked red head, which helps it to eat its favorite type of food, which is dead animals. It can, not to sound gross, it can stick its head in the carcass and pull out uh, more, well, 
innards, so to speak, uh, without having to try to clean its feathers on its head afterward. Recently, since the late 1980s, we've had another type of vulture here, a southern bird called the black vulture. Like many other species that we now have, this was formerly just a, a southern animal that's made its way up here and now are abundant, egregiously so, in villages like Warwick, New York here, very near the recording uh, studio for WTBQ Radio. And they will roost at night, sometimes to the chagrin of homeowners, they'll roost on rooftops or in dead trees, but what they really like are spruce groves. So when you see these big blackbirds everywhere, you're safe just to say, those are vultures. They're highly unlikely to be hawks if they look very dark. And eagles, you don't see quite as often as we, we see the vultures everywhere. And vultures, again, they persist here because there's no lack of dead animals in the winter and uh, usually on the roadside from deer and things like that being hit by cars, they do quite well. And so we see more and more of them every year for better or worse. But they're a wonderful bird. They keep things clean. Uh, they keep the dead animals from getting stinky in the area. And they're just beautiful to watch as they soar up high. So the real takeaway from all of this, as we get a little nearer the end of the, the show, is that there's no wrong way to observe nature as long as you're not trying to interfere with it. Just get out, you can sit in the car if you don't wanna be cold and use the car as a, a wildlife blind from which to watch things. Or get out to any of these parks, these natural areas. You don't even need binoculars at first. You don't, you don't need anything expensive to go bird watching. Just extra clothes, just dress warmly. If you have children, please consider doing this. Just get outside. You can always, if the kids are bored and you're not seeing a lot of things, you can have a snowball fight or make a snowman if there is in fact some snow out there. But if you're quiet and if you're really observant, you'll start to see wildlife. And this is very healthy for kids because it's very good to help foster our, our children's collective sense of observation. This is something that's lost when we have electronic spoon feeding of information to them. You can do so much for your child's intellect by putting them into a situation where they have to find things, not just Waldo, but really interesting things that just occur at random in nature, like our ancestors had to do. So as we get close to the end of the show, I guess the takeaway is get out there, no matter what it takes, nature watching is free. No matter what you do, get out there. 